Hello everybody. This is the sixth sermon looking at the book of Revelation. Today we are right at the heart of the book looking at chapters 12 to 14 and the hope unveiled this time is that those who patiently endure will be rewarded. What keeps a marathon runner going for such long distances? Alongside the necessary food and water, it is knowing the story of the race they are taking part in. They will have researched the course. They know where the uphill sections come and where the refreshment stations are placed. They aim for each one. As they run, they count down the mileposts and spend much of the time visualising themselves crossing the finish line into the embrace of family and friends. What keeps a student going as they wrestle with an essay or revise for an exam? Often they feel like giving up, but then they remember the story. School, university, placement, and then a long career making a real difference in the world. Rehearsing that story in their minds helps them put in the hours of hard work. What keeps a patient going after a cancer diagnosis? Again, alongside the support of loved ones, it's knowing the story of the road ahead. The first thing a patient asks after hearing the dreaded news is, what happens next? They then take a step at a time. The biopsy, the operation, the rounds of chemotherapy followed by radiotherapy, then hopefully remission followed by full health. Some parts of cancer treatment are brutal, so knowing where you are and visualising the end are vital. One of the things that makes this current coronavirus crisis so mentally difficult is that we know very little of the story. We don't fully know the circumstances of how it began. We don't fully know the path ahead. The advice changes all the time. And we don't really know the end either. Politicians keep telling us about having to embrace a new normal. And to someone who struggles with anxiety like I do, that is about the most destabilising thing they could possibly say. As we watch the news each day, we all want to know more of the story. It helps us to cope. This central section of Revelation calls its readers to endure patiently. Be they the persecuted Christians of the first century, or us struggling in this crisis today. In order to help us do that, It tells again the great story of salvation history and invites us to put ourselves within it. If we place our current troubles within the overarching truth of the gospel, we will find that we know where we are, where we are going, and that there is hope for every step of the journey on the way. We're now going to walk through the story in the text and then finish with some application for how we are to live today. The first part of the story comes in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 12 and tells of Christ's life on earth. Like all of Revelation, it does this through metaphor and apocalyptic imagery. A woman appears on the scene. She's crowned with 12 stars, representing the 12 tribes of Israel and later the 12 apostles. 
She is wrapped with the sun and moon, a symbol of her carrying the creator God's purposes for his world. This woman clearly represents God's people on earth. As we read these verses, we should also be remembering the prophecy in Genesis 3 that from Eve would come the one who would crush the evil serpent's head. This woman gives birth to a son. Verse 5 speaks of him growing up to rule over the nations. This is a quote from Psalm 2, a messianic psalm. This is Jesus Christ entering the world. But immediately we see his birth is opposed. There is a terrible red dragon, hideous in appearance and frighteningly powerful. In the Old Testament, monsters like Leviathan were used to symbolise the enemies of God's people and purposes. John leaves us in no doubt that this is the case here as well. In verse 9 he tells us that the dragon represents the devil, the personification of all that is evil. This dragon feels threatened by the woman's child, so does all it can to destroy him. It tries first at his birth. Remember here how Herod murdered all the innocent children to try to get to Jesus, but he failed. The dragon then tries again throughout the child's life, but ultimately again the devil fails. Eventually, through the cross, resurrection and ascension, Christ returns to the throne room of heaven and is safely out of the devil's reach. The second part of the story comes in verses 7 to 12 of chapter 12. Here we see why the devil was so determined to destroy the Messiah when it had the chance. It knew that ultimately this anointed one of God could defeat it. The Bible teaches us that through the cross and resurrection, a great victory was won. In Colossians 2.15, Paul wrote, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, Christ made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This has been the lesson of Revelation right from the beginning. When Jesus died and rose again, the decisive battle was won. Evil was defeated. It was hit so hard it can never recover. It can never come back to win the day. Because of Jesus, God's purposes are now unstoppable. In these verses of Revelation, this spiritual victory is symbolised by the dragon being defeated in the heavenly realms and being hurled down to earth. The devil can no longer get anywhere near the Messiah who sits on the throne. The devil will never be able to enter the throne room itself and take God's place. It is absolutely impossible. This decisive victory is celebrated in verses 10 to 12 by all the heavenly court. The martyrs join in the praise as they also have overcome evil by holding on to Jesus through their period of temptation. They grasped hold of the lamb even to death and now his blood covers them and promises them glory. So a great victory has been won, but Revelation never allows us to sink into unthinking triumphalism. All believers have to remain on their guard until Christ returns. Part 3 of the story comes in verses 13 to 17 of chapter 12 and tells us how the devil responds to its defeat. 
the dragon has been cast to the ground. But before it is vanquished from the world forever, it starts lashing out at God's people on earth. The devil has been fatally wounded, but these are the death throes. Imagine a punch-drunk boxer lashing out as he falls towards the canvas. Remember the period in World War II between D-Day and V-E Day. The decisive battle has been won, but the mopping up operation was still required. And until the final day, the enemy contained considerable power to harm. These verses picture this as the dragon pursuing the woman out into the wilderness. For 1,260 days, or three and a half years, it does everything it can to destroy God's people. Remember from last week that three and a half is half of the complete number seven. So this is a symbolic device to show us that this is an incomplete amount of time, or in other words, the devil fails. Out in the wilderness, God protects his people. He even uses his good creation to come to their aid. As Jesus taught himself, the gates of hell will never prevail over the church. It will never die out. It will last on earth until he comes again. This defeat leaves the dragon further enraged in verse 17. It's now been defeated three times. It failed to destroy the Messiah at his birth. It was fatally wounded at the cross and resurrection. And now it has failed to destroy the people of God on earth. It is spitting fury. So, in the devil's final remaining days, it resorts to trying a new approach to attack God's people. The devil is determined to take as many with it into defeat as it possibly can. In chapter 13 we're going to see its new tactic. The devil has tried out-and-out out violence. Now it will try seducing God's people into idolatry and sin. Just to make sure we all understand, the rest of Revelation 13 and 14 are describing the world as we know it. This is what the devil is up to in the days between Christ's ascension and his second coming. We are going to see patterns that are repeated throughout world history. The threats the devil creates were real in the first century, and they are real today. Again, these chapters are drawing on the Old Testament. In chapter 13, the devil draws a beast out of the sea that resembles in part a leopard, a bear and a lion. This is drawing on the prophecy of Daniel 7, which spoke of the kingdoms that rise over God's people. The promise there being that although these kingdoms cause much suffering, eventually they fall, and God vindicates his people's faithfulness. Therefore, the people must on no account pledge their allegiance to earthly forces, no matter how powerful they might be. We need to understand that the devil is being very clever here. It's trying to trap God's people. It's trying to lure them into making a mistake. In many ways, the beasts we find in this chapter look like God. They carry great power and authority. They wear a crown. They defeat some of their enemies. And they have powerful names and titles ascribed to them. They look pretty authentic. 
but verse 4 of chapter 13 makes it very clear. If God's people turn to worship the beast, they are actually worshipping the devil without knowing it. They have fallen into the worst form of idolatry and sin. Therefore, they must stay alert. We are introduced to the first beast that the devil raises in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 13. This beast is a powerful military figure of might and warfare. This is a beast that conquers by violence, that demands people's allegiance at the end of a sword. The original readers would have had no doubt who this beast represented. It was clearly Rome. Rome was built on seven hills. This beast had seven heads. In AD 68, Rome lost a violent emperor in Nero, but he was soon to be replaced by one even worse in Domitian. The beast in Revelation is presented as having one of its heads fatally wounded, but now healed. Rome set about persecuting the church. This beast makes war against God's people. The Roman Empire covered the entire known world. This beast has authority over people of every tribe, language and nation. To the first century church, the meaning of this part of the vision was crystal clear. The Roman emperor was demanding all people to worship him and enforce suffering on anyone who refused. Many in the church were terrified and were tempted into bowing the knee to Caesar and recanting their faith in Christ. By doing this, Revelation says, you are doing nothing short of worshipping the devil. You will have been seduced. Do not do it. Hold firm. Stand to the end. Even if your loyalty to Christ brings about your death, you must refuse to worship the beast. We on Isla in 2020 do not have to fear the Roman Empire anymore. We can see how ultimately that was defeated too. The devil failed once more. But the devil is still playing the same trick. Every time those in authority call us to compromise our faith, we must refuse. Every time we are called to worship at the shrine of nationalism above the gospel, we must refuse. Our God is higher than all earthly rulers, and that means sometimes we must resist them. We must never be seduced by the powerful who wield the sword of coercion. Unfortunately, the devil is still not finished. Its days are numbered, so it's going to throw the kitchen sink at the church to try and tempt them to destruction. So in verses 11 to 18 of chapter 13, it raises another beast. Again, we can see this is all about subtly seducing God's people down the wrong path. This beast is very shrewd in the way it lures us in. At first, this beast looks like a lamb. It looks like God. But when we get close, it speaks like a dragon. The purpose of this second beast is to try and draw the people into worshipping the first beast, and it will do anything in its power to do so. This beast is a propaganda machine. If any of you know your history of the Second World War, this beast does what Goebbels did for Hitler. Goebbels made wonderful promises to the German people. He spoke in sugary sweet tones. But all the time, he was working with Hitler on the extermination of the Jews. 
and leading the German people to join that effort. So what sort of propaganda does the second beast use? It uses the power of money. A mark is given to all those people who are prepared to worship the beast. It is then only those people with the mark that are allowed to buy and sell. Without the mark, you have no access to the market, business or financial success. Again, the church in the first century knew from first-hand experience what this meant. They had extra taxes thrown at them. They had their incomes closed down. As they were disowned by their families and betrayed by their friends, they lost all access to economic security. And when you have no money, you will do almost anything to get some. Even begin to worship a beast you know not to be God. Emmy and I are watching a drama at the moment called State of Happiness. Last week, a poor family were lured into selling their farm by an oil company who wanted their land. That farm had been in the family for generations, but the pull of money was just too strong. In selling up, it led to the destruction of an entire village as neighbours were then left with no choice. So this is what the famous Mark of the Beast is all about. It is the attempt to lure God's people away from God and get them to pledge their allegiance to an idol. In Deuteronomy 6, the Jews were asked to tie God's law to their hands and their foreheads. It was to govern their thoughts and their actions. By accepting the mark of the beast in those same places, people are allowing their lives to be governed by something that is not God. In verse 18, we find out what that something is. The mark is a number. Six, six, six. Again, to the first readers of this letter, there would have been no mystery here. In the Hebrew world, every letter of the alphabet was attributed to a number. For example, A equals 1, B equals 2, C equals 3, and so on. In Hebrew thinking, both the words Nero Caesar and the word beast add up to 666. The early church were not on any account to bow the knee to Rome and the emperor, even if they experienced great financial hardship. Notice also that 666 is an imperfect number, as each digit falls one below the complete number 7. So in this image, 777 would be God's mark. We on Isla might not be tempted to worship Nero Caesar anymore, but every time we put the idol of money, success, career, fame or power before God, we are effectively taking the same mark. We are being lured into worshipping the devil. We must resist and stay true to Christ alone. We have now covered a lot of ground, so let's just pause and recap where we are. We began by saying that when we're going through a tough time, knowing the story helps us to keep going. In Revelation 12 to 14, we get the story of salvation history. It began with the devil trying to destroy Christ on earth. It failed. The devil was then fatally wounded through the cross and resurrection. 
Angry at its defeat, the devil then tried to destroy the church. Again, it failed. So the devil, entering its final days, resorted to underhand tactics. It tried to seduce God's people through false power and economic advantage. And as we have said, these are the days that we are in now. But here is the good news. Ultimately, the devil fails with these tactics also. Despite the huge pressure thrown at the church by the two beasts, it does not fall. In verses 1 to 5 of chapter 14, we see the faithful who have managed to resist. There are 144,000 of them, the complete number of God's people that we saw earlier in the book. These are all those now dead and still living who have kept the faith. They refuse to bow to the devil and remain steadfastly following the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Here the imagery changes slightly. Now it's drawing on the adulterous woman found in the Old Testament book of Proverbs. This time the temptation is presented as a beautiful woman calling men to her bed of lust and sexual immorality. But the faithful ones of God manage to withstand her advances and keep themselves pure. They are committed to following the Lamb wherever he goes. Their high moral character and faithful behaviour goes up like a pleasing offering to the Lord. Verse 4 describes these faithful ones in a wonderful way. They are the first fruits. In the Old Testament, at the beginning of harvest season, you gave the first of your crops and the first of your animals to God. It was a sacrifice that said thank you to God and also a statement of trust in him that he would bring the rest of the harvest safely in also. This is what this passage is proclaiming. As those first century Christians resisted the might of Rome, it became a sign that all the world was God's. And one day when the time was right, he would have his full harvest. We today have the opportunity of faith because they, 2,000 years ago, stood firm. They were the first fruits. We are part of the great crop that follows. So yet again, the devil has not been successful. The church has managed to faithfully resist the temptation the devil set up in the two beasts. But as we have seen, they were only the first fruits. The full harvest comes later. So what are the church to do in the meantime? Well, this is what part seven of the story is all about, and it's found in verses six to 13 of chapter 14. Those who have resisted the devil are not to sit around doing nothing. They have a task to get on with. While the devil continues its attacks, they must speak out to those who are currently being tempted by the devil's plan. In other words, the church is to keep preaching the gospel into our ungodly world, calling people to repent while there is still time. It's a very similar to the message of chapters 10 and 11. In these verses, three angels get sent out. Angel in Greek simply means messenger. So this is the message the church is to proclaim to the world. Grace, truth and warning. The first angel announces grace. 
The gospel is available to all, even those who have been lured by the devil's schemes. Forgiveness is still possible if people come back and begin to fear and glorify God. The second angel announces truth. The church is not to be cowed. They must tell the world that doom awaits all decadent earthly empires. Be they Babylon, Rome or the German Reich, anything that sets itself up in the place of God will fall. Any leader or economic power that tries to seduce you will be destroyed in the end. The third angel announces warning. After announcing grace and the truth, the church is to announce a warning. It is a direct challenge to each person. No one can ignore this. In the end, every single human being will experience the fate of that which it worshipped. If you gave your allegiance to Rome and the idolatrous beasts of the world today, you will experience destruction. God's wrath at sin will come to bear and you will have no source of forgiveness. But if you gave your allegiance to Christ, you will celebrate his victory. If you endure patiently, you will experience blessing and rest. Can you see that this is the gospel? This is what we as the church are to proclaim until our dying day. Our message always begins with grace, the offer of the forgiveness of Jesus. But we must speak the truth about sin, and then we must call people to make a decision. We must warn them that there are eternal consequences to how they respond to Jesus. This then leads us to the final part of the story, found in verses 14 to 20 of chapter 14. Eventually the time of the church's witness will be over and there will be a judgment. For the third time in Revelation we find imagery that tells us that when Christ returns the world will end as we know it and our destiny will be set. Here the Son of Man returns to earth to complete the harvest he began. First there is a grain harvest where all the faithful are vindicated for their endurance of evil and receive eternal life. But then there is a grape harvest. Sadly, this is where all the ungodly, the wicked and unrepentant, all those who gave in to the seducement of the devil and never turned back, experience their destruction. There is no place for them in the new heavens and earth, the glorious kingdom of God. So now, finally, we reach the end of the story of salvation history, the gospel in all its fullness. Let's quickly run through it in its entirety. Christ came to earth to save his people. The devil tried to destroy him but failed. At the cross and resurrection, Christ fatally wounded the devil. From that moment on, evil could never flourish. As evil dies, it lashes out. At first, the devil tried to violently destroy the church, but God protected it. Until Christ returns, evil now tries to seduce God's people into idolatry through power and propaganda. But again, the devil fails. Many in the church resist. That church then preaches to the world, calling those who've fallen to repent before it's too late. Finally, Christ returns and all those who have bowed the knee, all those who patiently endured through the devil's schemes are vindicated 
and rewarded with eternal life in the kingdom of God. This is God's story, the great narrative that we are to live our lives within. May we all realise that we are in a spiritual battle and stay alert, but know to the core of our being that the final outcome is secure. May we be aware of the temptations in life to worship things that are not God. Often they're far more subtle than open attack. May we hang on to Jesus with everything we have, particularly when we're tempted to give up through this current crisis. And may we spread the message of the gospel to our world while there is still time. In these days, people are more willing to listen than ever before. The great hope that is unveiled in this section of Revelation is that those who patiently endure the sufferings and temptations of this life will find themselves rewarded.